0: As I mentioned at the outset this morning, that we have a special Sunday uh, today, as many uh, folks from Oklahoma Christian are with us this morning, and uh, we have a very special guest preacher, John DeSteiger. Uh, John is the president of Oklahoma Christian. Uh, He is the seventh president that Oklahoma Christian has had. He's been in that role now for seven years, and uh, he does a great job at it. Uh, He is no stranger to higher education. He's been involved with that for over 30 years. Uh, He and his wife, Darla, graduated from Northeastern. Their undergraduate degrees Uh, did graduate work, uh, John, in Jamaica, his wife, Darla, in New Zealand, and then they both earned Juris Doctorate degrees from Pepperdine uh, University Law School. Uh, When they are not uh, very active in their Memorial Road congregation, where John is a a deacon and a Bible teacher, uh, and uh, their family is very involved there, and obviously he does a lot of uh, of responsibilities and engagements like this with his role at Oklahoma Christian, Uh, but they and their family uh, do a great work in the kingdom of God, and we're very blessed to have them Uh, Their daughter, Abby, uh, graduated from Oklahoma Christian in 2017, and uh, she was also a Wichita Work Camp uh, alumnus, if you will, so uh, she's been here in this room before. Uh, We are very uh, blessed to hear from John DeSteiger. He spoke to our teens this morning and shared a little of himself, a little of how God has used his story, and I know you will be blessed. So, John, bring us a word from God's Word.
1: Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay in the back? Do you want to hear me okay in the back? (laughs) I saw somebody nod their head no. Okay, yeah. Man, Toby, thank you for that very kind introduction, just like my mom wrote it. That was, uh, I I am so honored to be here. Uh, Man, this is such a great congregation in so many ways. Your reputation is so strong. I loved my time with the youth group this morning. That was really a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciated the questions and I appreciated your patience with me trying to figure out answers to some of those questions. Hey, so I want to, there actually might be a lot of OC people here. So let me ask this question. If you are a current student or a former student or a family member of a current or former student, or, or if you work at Oklahoma Christian, would you please stand so I can, uh, so we can recognize you? Yeah. Oh, look at this. Okay. Very good. Okay. Hey. It's everyone who's seated, it's not too late for you all to enroll at Oklahoma Christian. You can you can be a part of this group. Well, I've got to tell you, I actually I promised this to to the youth group. A question was asked every time before I speak, I get pretty nervous. And it it goes back to something that happened many decades ago. I I grew up, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. But we settled down for junior high and high school years after he retired in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Pretty strong youth group. We actually went to a lot of the area congregations and smaller churches and the young men got to lead the services. We would preach and we'd do the singing, we'd do the Lord's Supper, we'd make announcements and pray. One Sunday morning when I was 16 years of age, in the month of July or August, it was really hot, I was invited to go and preach at the Moody Church of Christ. That's kind of like a little community, almost a suburb of Tahlequah. I was invited to preach, not because I was a good preacher, but because my grandmother, Mama Deem, was related to half of the people at the Moody Church of Christ. So that Sunday morning, we got up, got into her red Chevy Citation, I drove, We get there. I am preaching away. Man, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I take my jacket off and I lay it down. I keep preaching, keep going. And then after a few more minutes, man, my vision is beginning to change. It's getting kind of gray on the periphery. It's beginning to work its way toward the middle. Uh, Another minute or so passes and the room begins to spin the next thing I know, I open my eyes, I am laying flat on my back on the stage. Six adults are peering over at me, an older guy says, hey, he's coming too, he's coming too, let's back up. I had passed out during my own sermon, okay? So they helped me to my feet, and I did what any self-respecting 16-year-old preacher wannabe would do. I finished my sermon that morning, ladies and gentlemen, so... Church is over. We go back out to my grandmother's car. She, by the way, I was her favorite. I was the firstborn. My, my sisters were here. They would admit the same thing. I was her favorite. She never had a word of criticism. She, uh, she never was uh, mean to me in any way. And so I'm thinking, what, what is Mama Dean going to say to me after this? And so we're driving back to Tahlequah. She's looking out the passenger window. She looks over at me after a couple minutes, and she says, well... I thought, okay, here it comes. She goes, well, you don't see that every Sunday morning now, do you? <laughs> so we get home, we rest up that afternoon, go back to church that night. So I'm at the South College Church of Christ in Talco that night. One of my buddies comes up to me and he says, hey, John, I heard you preached at Moody this morning. How did it go? I said, it was unbelievable. He said, unbelievable, what do you mean? And I looked around to make sure Mama Dean was not within the earshot. I said, It was unbelievable. I had six people come forward during my sermon this morning. So if I pass out, I really, I need all of you guys, seven of you to come up and my story will change. Hey, by the way, one of the elders gave me a note, asked me to read this before uh, I get started here. Okay, here it is. Dear guests, thank you for joining us at Northside Church of Christ this morning. Please know that John is not our regular preacher. As far as we know, John is not anyone's regular preacher. Please come back next Sunday and give us a second chance. Very truly yours, the elders. Okay, all right. Man, I'm so honored to be here. Hey, we live in a society that loves choice. We love to make choices. Now, that's always true unless you're in a car and one of your friends says, hey, where do you want to eat? That's the one time we don't want to make the decision or, or make the choice. Darla and I, early in our marriage, for a number of years, each year at about the same time, we were on the verge of becoming fabulously wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. You see, every year about this particular time, we would get this letter in the mail. And it had a picture on it of a friend of ours. We never met him, but he seemed like to be a friend of ours. His name was Ed McMahon. He was on The Tonight Show, and it was the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. Now, they do it online nowadays, so it's not real, okay? But it used to be they would send you this letter once a year, and they were telling you how much money you were going to win if you entered into this contest. Now, they also wanted you to order a whole bunch of magazines as well. But Darla and I, and really more me than Darla, would sit down, and we would look through the magazines, and I would begin to think, man, all this money coming, well, you know what I'm going to do with this money when I win this money? I'm going to give a whole bunch of money to church. I'm going to give a whole bunch of money to my university. By the way, I still agree with both of those points, okay? But then I also would talk to Darla about, you know what? Let's pay off our parents' homes. Let's, let's send the nieces and nephews to college let's uh let's do these special things for other people, and you know maybe we can buy a used refrigerator for us or something you know let's let's I, I knew that we were being so altruistic. I knew that ninety percent of America would not send their form back in, and I knew that nobody else was going to do as many good things with all that money as we would, so I knew that God was going to give us that publisher's. Clearinghouse Sweepstakes victory that that year. And then I'd come to these last two boxes, and one box was, please enter me in the sweepstakes, and I want to order all of these magazines. And I would always check the box that said, please enter me in the sweepstakes, but I don't want any magazines. And I kind of thought, maybe I won't win this particular year. But I loved having the thought of choice on how, I would do these special things if it ever turned out that I would win. So let me ask you this. If you had somebody that came up to you and said, your heart's desire, if you could choose any community to be a part of, to live in, what community would you choose? Now, a lot of people immediately think, man, I'd like to live on the beach. Somebody else says, I'd like to live in the mountains. Somebody says, I want to live in a in a, in a a big, big city where there are things going on all the time. And somebody else might say, well, I want to live in a small town where everybody knows everybody. Or somebody might say, I actually want to live out in the country where I'm kind of by myself. Some people might say, I want to live up north. Frankly, in August, sometimes I think it would be nice to live up north. But I know in about four or five months, I'd probably prefer to be living down south somewhere. Where, what kind of community would you be a part of? There are a couple of great examples in the Old Testament of people that were invited to be a part of a community. They had to make a choice on where to live, and they went about it a little bit differently. In Genesis chapter 13, Abram and his family and all of his entourage, and his nephew Lot and his family and all of his entourage... They leave Egypt, and they're in the Negev, and then they end up near Bethel. And Abram realizes what's obvious. He realizes that there are quarrels breaking out between his men and Lot's men, because the land really won't handle all of these people and all of these flocks and all of these herds together. And so Abram goes to Lot, and he says, your men and my men are quarreling, and that's not right. We should not and the land can't handle all of us tell you what lot we're going to have to separate if you choose to go left i will go right if you choose to go right i will go left lot looks around and he looks out into the valley of the jordan and it's well watered and it reminds him really of this lush place like the garden of the lord and he says that's where i'm going to go so he heads to the east to the valley of the jordan And sure enough, Abram goes in the opposite direction. So Lot chose community based on geography. In Ruth chapter 1, we read a different choice. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they live in the Bethlehem area and famine has hit and they need to move. And so they decide to pick up and go to Moab. They get to Moab Elimelech dies, the two sons marry women. And they've been there for 10 years, and the two sons die. Now, Naomi realizes that the famine has lifted back in the promised land. And so she decides to return home. And her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, choose to go with her. And they begin the journey back. And then Naomi stops them and says... You all have been so kind to me and you've been so kind to the dead. But Orpah and Ruth, there's really no future for you back where I am going. You see, you need to return to your mother's households where maybe you can find husbands and you can have rest in their homes. But don't stay with me because I will never have more children. And even if I do have sons, it would be so long before they were ready to be married that you all could not wait. And the girl said, no, we want to go with you. And Naomi prevailed upon them again, don't go with me, return to your mothers. And Orpah kisses her goodbye and cries and returns to her mother. But Ruth says something that we actually have heard hundreds and hundreds of times. We use it often in wedding ceremonies where Ruth replies to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. My people, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I will die and that's where I'll be buried. You see, Lot chose his community based on geography. Ruth chose her community based on people, on relationships, God cares about the where of our community, but not nearly as much as he cares about the what and the how of our community. You know, the community that we choose to be a part of influences us. Now, we influence our community as well. Our community influences us. Often, our community will draw us in or it will push us out. Our community will either lift us up or it will drag us down. Our community will encourage us or sometimes it has the power to discourage us. Community is important to God. In fact, one of the most precious accounts of community occurs right after the church begins. You know the story. It's the day of Pentecost. You know that Peter has preached a message that is just unbelievable, and more than 3,000 have responded to the gospel call, and they've become baptized, they have become Christians. And right after that, in Acts chapter 2, the author Luke tells us what that early church is like. Listen to his account. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Here's what this community looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This community flowered, and it nourished those who were a part of it. It was probably a community like most of these people had never, ever experienced before, people who loved them and cared about them and supported them in all sorts of ways. And for some on the outside, this looked very, very scary. In fact, we know of a pretty prominent individual in Jerusalem at this time who actually was so upset by what was happening in this new group of individuals that he went on the war path. In fact, he went a little bit later and actually stood by and held the garments of people as they killed the first martyr that we're aware of, Stephen. This fellow, Saul of Tarsus, he was educated in a very elite way in Judaism, and he was zealous about keeping the old way, and he hated the church. He in, fact, he, in fact, gets letters from the Sanhedrin, and he goes to Damascus to arrest Christians and put them into jail and to bring them back maybe in chains, and then he encounters Jesus and everything changes. So this community that he was fearful of and hated, he actually writes about it about 25 or 30 years later, after his conversion. In Romans chapter 12, he begins to write about how Christians ought to treat one another. Here's what he says. He says, "'Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves.'" Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. God cares about the where of our community, but he cares a lot more about the what and the how of our community. Okay, so let's get practical for a second. How do we we develop this kind of community where people care about and look out for each other in very, very special ways? My daughter graduated two years ago from Oklahoma Christian. She has a degree in psychology. She read about some books from a particular author, and she said, Dad, you need to read some of this lady's works. And so I did not know this person. I watched a, a talk that she gave on a TED Talk on, on, on the Internet. I was pretty impressed. Her name is Dr. Brene Brown. She's a social worker. So she has this book called Rising Strong, and I read that this summer when I came across that book. And Brene Brown talks about an encounter that she had actually a conversation with her mom that I think gives us three important keys to building community that makes a difference. Here's the story. It's on page 175 of the book Rising Strong. What Brene says is she actually had an encounter with a woman that she didn't like that much, and she kind of had a low regard and maybe thought, hey, people aren't trying their best, and she asked a bunch of friends, do you think people really try their best? And her friends all said, "Ah, we think people try pretty hard. And so Brene was surprised by that. Then she had an encounter with a homeless person, and she thought, that this homeless person, she kind of put them in this particular box, she felt psychologically, lots of difficulties and problems and maybe no opportunities in life. And then the next day, she actually saw this homeless person sitting behind a grand piano playing beautiful music. And so she was confused because she had read these two individuals and she apparently had read them wrong. Her mom was in the hospital. She goes up to visit her her mom in the hospital after surgery, and she tells her mom about these two encounters, and she just is confused about people and community. And her mom says, Brene, let me tell you about your grandmother, my mom, mima And so Brene climbed up on the foot of her mom's hospital bed, and this is what her mom said. Her mom said, when I was five years of age, Mima and our family moved to San Antonio, Texas. We lived about a half of a block away from where the train tracks were. And right there, there was this kind of grass field, and there was a a hill that the train tracks had to go over. And so what would happen is the trains would always slow down as they came near our house a half a block away on the train tracks here. Frankly, Brene, it was a place where the train went so slow that people would get on and off of the train. And, in fact, a lot of hobos would get on and off of the train right there. Now, hobo is not a term that we use very much anymore. I've, I've looked it up. There are several definitions of a hobo. But in case you don't know, one way to look at a hobo is really a, um, a, an individual who is very mobile and looking for work. He, and it's almost always men, They did not have a set place where they lived. They traveled to the next town looking for work in agriculture or looking for work in the oil fields or in a variety of other places. They lived a very mobile life. And so Brene's mom said, this was a place where actually hobos would get on and off the train pretty regularly. And then she told Brene more. She said, Mima had five metal plates, and five metal cups, and five metal forks. And she kept those in a dishpan under the sink. And every time Meemaw made a meal for our family, she would make way more than we could eat. And Brene, it wasn't unusual for us to be seated down down to eat when there was a knock at the door, and Meemaw would get up and go to the front door, and there on the front porch would be one or more hobos, and Mima would go into the kitchen, she would go under the sink, and she would pull up the metal plates and the metal cups and the metal forks. She would put the food and drink in those, and she would take them out to the hobo or hobos, and they would eat on the front porch or in the front yard on the swing. And then when they were done, they would bring their plates and cups and forks back, and Mima would take those and clean them and put them back under the sink. Now, Brene had never heard this story before, and she said, well, Mom, how, how did the hobos know that they should come to your house to get food? And Brene's mom said, Brene, we were marked. We were marked by the hobos. You see, they're was often a a sign that a hobo would paint or place on a gate or a curb of a home where they found hospitality or generosity or kindness, a place where they could get a warm meal. Brene, we were marked as a family. You know the phrase, he or she is an easy mark? We kind of think of that person as gullible, they're naive, they're someone you can take advantage of. The origin of that phrase was a hobo phrase. That person is an easy mark. They will provide hospitality and generosity and kindness to us. So that made some sense to Brene. That's how a hobo could figure out that would be a good place to go. And by the way, I've had several people, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are one or more folks in this audience who will come to me later today and say, you know what? My mom and dad, or my grandparents, we were marked as well, and hobos would come to our home for food and kindness. Brene said, okay, I get it how the hobos knew you were marked because they marked you, but, but mom, how was it that Mima knew that she could trust these people to show them this kindness? And here are the three lessons for us as we build community. The first thing that Brene's mom told her was this. She said, Brene, Mima knew hobos personally. When we know somebody personally, it changes everything. Mima knew and had a good friend across the street. It was a woman. They were dear friends. They did a lot of things together. And this woman across the street, her younger brother, when he came back from World War II, he chose to live the life of a hobo. And he traveled along. And because Mima knew her and knew him, Because she knew him personally, she had a different feeling about trusting and caring for other hobos. So a few years ago at Oklahoma Christian, we had some students that um, they would go. There was a McDonald's on the corner of our campus, on the southeast corner of our campus. And these students from time to time would go to this McDonald's and eat. Now, I'm convinced they would go to that McDonald's and eat to remind themselves of how great the food on campus was, okay? Well, as they would go there, they actually encountered some other people, and they got to make acquaintance with and then become friends with a woman who was very different than them. Her name was Betty. She was older. She had a different background. uh, She came from a different place, and she lived in a different way. But they developed a relationship with Betty. Well, every time they went there, they saw Betty and they enjoyed their time with her. And then they went back and Betty was gone. And they asked, where's, where's our friend Betty? Come to find out that that McDonald's had had a tough time financially and they had to lay off eliminate some positions. And Betty's position was eliminated. So the students were concerned about that. They came back to the university. They talked to Kurt. Kurt runs food service at Oklahoma Christian, and they said, Kurt, you need to hire Betty. Betty is awesome. She has experience in food service. She's just the kind of person that you want to have here. Kurt said, well, I can't promise I'll hire her, but I will interview her. So Kurt interviewed Betty and hired Betty. Betty worked at Oklahoma Christian for several years. She was, she was a person that was in charge of the dessert area at the university, Uh, people would come in, students would come in, and she would ask them three questions. I kind of, as a president, I love these questions she asked them. She would ask them, hey, are you going to class, are you going to chapel, are you going to church? I don't know if you had to answer those all three yes to get dessert, but I'm glad that she was asking those questions. So that sounds like a pretty great story. These students meet somebody they didn't know, they get to know her, and they want to take care of her. They get her a job on campus, you think, wow, that's a pretty great story the story is even better. You see, Betty lived about three miles north of campus. She lived in an apartment building. Uh, She did not have a car. She did not have a driver's license. If you knew Betty, you would be glad that she did not have a car or a driver's license. But the students realized that she needed to have a way to get back and forth to campus. And so they developed What they called this ministry, one of them would wake up early in the morning and go up to her apartment and pick her up and fetch her back to campus. At the end of the day, another student would go and meet her at the dessert bar, get her in the car and drive her back to her apartment. They called this ministry Driving Miss Betty. A couple years later, she had a, a birthday, they threw a surprise birthday party for her and they gave her a t-shirt and on the t-shirt, they actually had a photo of Morgan Freeman in chauffeur's clothes and in the rearview mirror, if you look closely, Miss Betty was sitting in the back seat. Miss Betty really loved that t-shirt, but after a couple of minutes, she said, I really love this t-shirt, but who's this guy driving the car? So we had the chance to educate her culturally as well. I love that story because these students didn't know Betty, but because they got to know her personally, everything changed. So Meemaw knew hobos personally, and that's why she trusted them. But there was a second thing as well. There was a second thing that helped Meemaw in her relationship with them. Sometimes we see somebody who's very different than us. And because they're very different than us, we put them in a category as the other. We think they're something strange and different, and we can't really be in their life because we are different from them. But ma, she was raised in poverty. She suffered domestic violence. She was divorced, and she was an alcoholic, according to her daughter. And so her daughter said she didn't see hobos as the other because she was one of the other people. Also, let's face it, I think there are two categories of people in this world. The first category, it's the people that they don't ever sin and they don't ever have any problems in their life. They are loyal and true to their friends, and their friends are always loyal and true back to them. They never make any mistakes. They don't have any hard times. They don't need God. They don't need Jesus. That's one category of people. The other category of people, we are sinners and we make mistakes. We have Family members that we're good to sometimes and not so good to sometimes. Sometimes we're loyal and true to our friends and they to us, but not all of the time. We need God and we need Jesus. In these two categories, let me tell you, that first category, there is nobody that lives in that first category. We are all in this second category. So Mima knew others personally and she knew that she was the other as well. And here's the third and final thing as we build community. Mima was not afraid of need. You know, these hobos, they had needs that she could supply, and she was comfortable with that because she was raised, and she realized that she had need, and so she asked for people to help her, and they did. So she was comfortable with need. It takes a strong person to help somebody else out, Sometimes it takes an even stronger person to ask for that kind of help. Man, community is so important and God cares about our community. I love the community that we read about in the New Testament. I love the community that we can be a part of. How best to be a part of this community? Well, the best way is to become a Christian. To devote your life, to dedicate your life to Jesus, to be baptized, to be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, or maybe to come back to the community that you've been a part of and have departed from, or maybe to come back and just ask for encouragement and help. That's what this invitation is all about. And if there's any way that the leaders, the elders, and the ministers of this congregation can help minister to you, please let us know by coming forward while we stand and while we sing the song of invitation. Please stand.